This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. We have talked a little bit before about this new film on Netflix called Pray Away, which one writer said seethes with contempt for Christianity. This is a pro-LGBT movie that interviews a number of former ex ex-gays, am I saying that right? Former ex-gays, sometimes they call themselves ex-ex-gays, who used to promote so-called conversion therapy and now have embraced their same-sex attractions. The film also claims to chronicle the ex-gay movement's rise to power, its unscientific influence, and its legacy of profound harm. But what viewers won't get from Pray Away is the whole truth on this subject. You won't get the whole truth about what Christian counseling for people with unwanted same-sex attraction is really all about. You won't get the whole truth about the participants interviewed in the film, and you also won't get the testimonies of those whom Christ has set free from homosexuality. In other words, pray away is predictable, one-sided propaganda. Well, my next guest, Peter LaBarbera, president of Americans for Truth About Homosexuality, is out with a new piece critiquing pray away. He also knows some of the people in this film and is here to tell us what you won't hear or see in this new Netflix movie. Peter, welcome. Always good to have you here. Hey, thanks, Janet. Thanks for having me on. Well, the title itself of this film is pejorative. Do you know of anybody, you've been in this movement critiquing the LGBT movement for many, many years now. Have you ever met anybody who ever counseled anyone struggling with homosexuality who told them, we'll just pray away the gay? It's as simple as that. Has anybody ever actually done that? Uh, Of course not. This is uh, a smug little um, smear term. I think it was developed by homosexual activist Wayne Besson. Uh, to basically ridicule the whole idea that people, that God can help people out of homosexuality, out of transgenderism. So it's a snide uh, smear term, you know, against us, and yet the media treats it as if it's some kind of serious thing. Well, of course. And I think that you do a good job describing this film by saying it employs the usual array of editing tricks, unsubtle bias and one sided interviews to ram home its activist minded theme that so-called conversion therapy is cruel, fraught with danger and ought to be banned by law. So give us a little synopsis of what you observe just overall about this film. I know you've seen it and you have a lot to say and you think a lot of things about it from the perspective of somebody who knows some of the people in this film. Yeah, this was a real hard one for me to watch, Janet, um, because I knew the people. I knew, I worked with Yvette Cantu Schneider, who's one of the, uh, I'm calling them spiritual traitors, uh, (laughs) traitors to the truth and traitors to God who are in this film. I knew Randy Thomas. I knew Alan Chambers. I knew John Polk. I worked with John Polk. Um, I spoke at Love One Out uh, seminars uh, at the request of John Polk and focus on the family. And so to, to see all these people turn against the truth is just, so, it's been so hard for me to deal with. Much harder than dealing with homosexual activists uh, is dealing with the Christians who sell out God uh, for, for the world. And that's what this is all about. Um, you know, it goes through one after the other uh, of these people who are basically, like I said, traitors um, on, you know, on the truth issue. And 
it, um, it it's just so it's so difficult because as you know Janet these are all self-serving individuals they've all proclaimed the exact opposite when they had their christian testimonies and so why would anybody believe them now i mean mm-hmm. i have a quote from Yvette Cantu Schneider which she told me in 2007 now Yvette um, once called herself a former lesbian she told me and i quote Janet I came out of homosexuality after a powerful encounter with Jesus Christ and a desire to serve and obey him. I can say with complete honesty that I never, and she capitalized never, never have homosexual desires of any sort, physical or emotional, Hmm. close quote. Hmm. Now, this same woman is appearing on activist. She's working for homosexual activists. She's saying she's calling herself a bisexual, even though she's still happily married to her husband, Paul. Uh, by the way, they both supported me at Americans for Truth uh, for years before the, the turnaround. And now she's saying that nobody ever changes. And so I, I got to believe these people are either thoroughly delusional or they're just deceived or they're just they're just hucksters. They're just maybe throwing their finger up and seeing where the wind blows and they decided to switch sides. But uh, although in, in Yvette's case, uh, she underwent therapy uh, uh, counseling because her, her, her daughter got leukemia, and she was, uh, you know, as you know, Janet, she was doing some very bad things, uh, meditation-wise, spirit guides, et cetera, yeah. because she was in a panic mode because her, her daughter got sick. Well, in the trailer, I know they feature Yvette Cantu Schneider. I had mentioned her on the show a couple of days ago, but one of the things you had pointed out was, at least in the trailer, I don't know if this is true in the whole film, you've seen the whole film and I have yet to see the entire film, she talks about having panic attacks, but she doesn't explain the panic attacks were not about her ex-gay status, they were about her daughter who was suffering from leukemia. I mean, is that ever explained in the film that that was a a big factor in why she was having those sorts of moments. Yeah, and I think this is ed- editing trickery or, or somebody's lying because I just watched again just to make sure I had it right. In the film, she starts, she says she had panic attacks after Prop 8, which was the California initiative that protected the definition of marriage that passed in 2008. She talks about the panic attacks and then she goes and she's shown uh, going in to see her counselor. Now, in the book, she wrote, Janet, you're absolutely right. The panic attacks, the whole theme of the books was the pan- she, it, the counseling she began, the psychi- psychological uh, counseling, was after her daughter came down with leukemia. And she got these panic attacks all the time, and she was worried that she wouldn't be able to care properly for her daughter. There is no mention of leukemia. There's no mention of her daughter uh, and the panic attacks starting then in the film. And so all I can think is that, uh, it, you know, this is a standard trick that, that anybody can do with film. You take something that sounds terrible and you take it out of context and you don't really, you don't tell the whole story. And so the, the average watcher of Pray Away, the, this movie, will think that Yvette got panic attacks because of unsurety over homosexuality. Good grief. And, you know, you can really feel for the poor woman. I can't imagine having to go through such trauma as having your daughter struggle with cancer. My heart really goes out to her. But yeah, when you're having a a form of editing of the movie where you're not really getting the whole story, even on her website, Peter, she talks about desperate for relief, having had the panic attacks over her daughter's leukemia. It says she sees a psychotherapist who introduces her to guided imagery meditation to heal trauma and 
And over the course of her daughter's treatment, her encounters in meditation, animals, goddesses, and other guides who show her that it is the wounded feminine within her that pushed her to find meaning and acceptance in a rigid religious structure and to become a spokesperson for controversial socio-political causes. Well, what really is tragic about all of this is that she's wandering into the world of the occult here and paganism. I mean, for heaven's sake, can't you see any kind of connection here, knowing where she is now spiritually, that there is a spiritual element to all of this. It's not probably just about sexuality. There's clearly some kind of a spiritual battle going on in this poor woman's life. Yes, and I'm afraid that Satan's winning that spiritual battle. And let me be clear, Janet, I was I was a friend of Yvette. I loved the work Yvette had done. She was one of the most principled speakers on the Exodus, you know, Love One Out, at the Love One Out conferences that they would have, which basically promoted the idea of healthy change away from homosexuality. And so to see her go down in flames this way and to totally reverse herself, um, it's almost been hard for me to even read about it. I've only read half her book so far because it's so hard for me to deal with because we were allies and and uh, we worked together at Family Research Council. Um, and I am I am so thankful to God that her daughter survived uh, that terrible illness. But you know, God is bigger than illness. God is bigger than our family. You can't turn your back on Jesus Christ. And I interviewed Yvette extensively for my uh, for my group and uh, my, my original publication before I even formed Americans for Truth called Lambda. I interviewed Yvette, and she talked about how she witnessed to uh, a friend who was dying of AIDS and how she shared the gospel. And so this is complete apostasy, and of course it's spiritual, but this is, this is like all the people in the film. And by the way, yep. Janet, yep. the film does not mention her apostasy. Good grief. Well, we're going to talk more about this. Peter LaBarber with us will return on Janet Meffer today after this. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International to send God's word to 1,500 Bibleist believers in Africa, in many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, and Mozambique. As many as nine out of 10 Christians are denied God's word because of corrupt governments, majority religions, remoteness, and poverty. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me, and now it will means so much to these Bibleist Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor John in Mozambique. One occasion, I found a pastor that was leading a church of 90 church members. And he was having one Bible that was starting from Exodus and ends to the Ephesians. And he was leading the church with that Bible. So when we went to give them the Bible, imagine joy. They sang, they danced, they cried, and they praised God for the gift of the Bible. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20 $500 sends 100 and your gift of any size will help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Actually, the, the need is great. 
if you could remember the other picture of a lady who was trying to show me the Bible that pastor I understand you work with Bible but we don't have Bibles here so they, they, that, that lady had a Bible from Exodus to the book of Hebrews. That's all. You see that? So there is a great need of Bibles. Send God's word to a Bibleist believer in Africa today for only $5. Call 800-YESWORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. They are calling them XX gays. Isn't that quite a term? People who were interviewed in this new Netflix film called Pray Away, telling their stories about how they used to be ex-gay, but then they came to their senses and embraced their real identity uh, in homosexual sin of various sorts and kinds. And a lot of the people featured in the film are known and people uh, my guest worked with. Peter LaBarbera is with us from Americans for Truth about homosexuality. You know, going back to the overarching theme of the movie, Peter, uh, before we get into some more of these individuals who are featured in the film, tell people what your main problems are with the whole narrative of the film and what it's trying to do. Because the narrative is trying to demonize the idea that God can help bring people out of homosexuality, and that is an insult to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Homosexuality is, is maybe a, a, a sort of an alien sin to most people, but it is a sin, and like any other sin, it's overcomable through Jesus Christ. And for anybody, I don't care who they are, to say that, that you are not able to be redeemed or God cannot radically change you when... Anybody who's born again can testify to the change that the Holy Spirit and the Lord bring in a person's life. For them to say that somehow homosexuality is beyond that, the capacity of the Lord, is blasphemous. But then to go beyond that even, Janet, and say that God blesses homosexuality, God blesses homosexual marriage. The, the, the film shows Julie Rogers, yeah. who is a former Christian who actually was affiliated with Wheaton College, getting so-called married to another woman in the National Cathedral. To go beyond that and, said, and say that, that the Lord and the Bible bless homosexual relationships is the height of evil. Well, so they're pushing a gay gospel. Do they go that far in the film? Well, absolutely. I mean, they're they're saying that 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 how dare you you know go against this because we're fine with God and you can't have it both ways. You can't call yourself a Christian. Now, I don't think Yvette would call herself a Christian anymore because she was you know she was consult <laughs> uh, you know she was doing the the spirit guides and she obviously walked away from her faith. But Randy Thomas, who's another one of the speakers uh, featured in this XX gays featured in this uh, this film. Uh, claims to be a believer, and yet he he says that that that, that homosexuality and and the gospel and, and the Bible are compatible, which is preposterous. So I think these people are intellectually dishonest, and they also just you know I'd have more respect for a homosexual atheist than I do somebody who calls themselves a faithful Christian who is practicing a sin that God hates. Well, let's talk about Randy Thomas for a moment, and I want to back up a little bit for people who aren't familiar with the history of Exodus International. Uh, Alan Chambers, many people might remember, was the last head of Exodus International. At one time, World Magazine gave, gave him the Daniel of the Year Award, and I thought, oh, pie in face. That, that's so embarrassing now to think about that. But Alan Chambers and Randy Thomas, who was kind of his sidekick, I don't remember his exact title, but he was one of the leaders over at Exodus. They had been involved primarily in this false theology 
And this is something a lot of Christians don't know. They had embraced this theology that was put forward by Alan's mentor and pastor, Clark Witten, and it was all about hypergrace. It doesn't matter basically what you do. As long as you have a personal relationship with God, you're good. Alan Chambers took this to extremes. Randy Thomas apparently has followed in his footsteps. Now you have Randy Thomas. Isn't he now out of the closet saying he's involved with a man and he's celebrating it? Yeah, yeah. In this film, he's getting he was engaged. I don't know what his status is right now. Well, it's tragic because these two, what what a lot of people are led to believe about Exodus is that the reason Exodus folded was because so-called conversion therapy doesn't work. They came to the honest conclusion that despite our best efforts over X number of years, people just can't change. And that's kind of the narrative that Alan put out there. That's not why Exodus folded, Peter. I mean, think about this. All of the Christians who've been led to believe that the failure of people to leave homosexuality was why Alan was just forced to shutter the doors of Exodus International. In fact, they changed the bylaws. They took over the ministry. There was a lot of internal strife among people like our friend Stephen Black and others who were saying, what are you doing? People do change. And there was a big fight behind the scenes. Is any of this covered in Pray Away at all? Uh, of course not. And it was Alan Chambers who, even before Exodus fully imploded, famously said that he's over, over 99% of the of the ex-gays he's met never experienced change, still were, were gay. And my question is, you know, these people are so arrogant to think they know that there's no change. And I think Yvette is saying this now. She says nobody changes. And I'll tell you this, Janet, one redeeming part of the film is maybe to show some sign of, of balance, they do cover this freedom march movement of people who are claiming change now yeah. uh, this is led by a guy named Jeffrey McCall and so there even though uh, homosexual activists are trying to say that the ex-gay movement is over God keeps saving people out of homosexuality. He keeps delivering people out of gender confusion and transgender and transsexuality, and people are continually getting saved. And and that's, I think, uh, one of the things this film sort of accidentally reveals, that people are still coming out of homosexuality. Well, and it's a ridiculous claim to make. It's one thing to say, I'm now an atheist and I want to practice homosexuality and that's my identity. I mean, you're free to do that in the United States of America. But at the same time, turning around and saying nobody changes, how can they even credibly make that claim when there are living examples of people who have been delivered from homosexuality for years and do have successful marriages and have lived a pure lifestyle that is consistent with the way God designed them? It's as if these people don't exist. Is that basically what they're trying to pretend is the case, that people like that, they're just a myth? There are no well, real people I think, like I that. Think the strategy. Janet, the strategy is you keep saying it over and over again, and the media keeps repeating it, and more people will believe it. Yeah, I mean, think of John Polk for an example. He was very much in the limelight at the time. I think he was on the cover of Newsweek with his ex-wife, Ann Polk, who's the head of Restored Hope Network. John Polk has talked a lot about returning to homosexuality, but his own ex-wife is still set free. So why not put Ann Polk in the movie and talk about her testimony and give the other side of the story? Now, I think they did request that Ann Polk participate, and she turned it down, but you could say that about so many leaders. Why not invite Stephen Black? Yeah. You know, why not? there are so many people they could have gone to, but they only included Jeffrey McCall, and I'm thankful they did, although I think they did it because they wanted to say, because they showed, you know, some of these freedom marches, and they were trying to make it look like, oh, these are radical Christians, um, but... 
thank God that he's in there because his joy comes out as a, as a former transgender. He was a, mm-hmm. a cross, you know, he was, he, he had a transgender so-called woman identity and he, and the Lord delivered him from that. Um, so, uh, that, that's in the film, thank God, and more attention will be drawn to that ministry. Well, that's good. Yeah. And you think of people like Joe Dallas, Laura Perry, there are many, many other people we can talk about whom God really has set free and they have unbelievable testimonies of what the Lord did in their lives. What do you think non-Christians need to know about the hope for change, Peter, the accurate picture also of what Christians are trying to communicate to people who are struggling with homosexuality, not this simplistic Wayne Besson, perhaps Wayne Besson invented this term, pray away. What's the reality? What is the truth that you wish were in this film? I wish they had people who were happy and contented and and, and out of homosexuality and, and did in-depth probing interviews with them like they did with the XX gays. Of course, they couldn't do that because this was all about trashing the idea that you can leave. But I really think that uh, this could have been a good movie had they even just played it down the middle, Janet. But of course, the left is not interested in fairness. It's all about propaganda, and they're trying to create the idea that any change away from homosexuality is impossible. And we know that's not the case. And so I think Christians need to understand, yeah, go get Joe Dallas's book while you still can, because <laughs> the left is starting to ban that. Yeah. Read up and, fi- and, and hear the stories in your church and popularize them of people getting delivered out of homosexuality and, and tell that story because it's an integral part of our culture now. We we have this LGBTQ movement, which has become, as we talked about last time, Janet, it's like a religion unto itself. Yes. You know, it's the new secular religion for America, and we need to counter it with the truth that God can help people like he helps with any other sin, he can deliver people from this sin. Yeah, he can hang the sun and the moon and the stars and create <laughs> the entire world. But he can't deliver anybody from sexual sin because Netflix says right. so. I mean, Janet, if, you, if, you, if you struggle with, with the temptation, even after you've you know, gotten saved out of homosexuality, well, guess what? People struggle with temptation all over the place. Sure. It doesn't mean you can't change. Right. Exactly right. You know, uh, also this idea of conversion therapy, would you speak to that issue? I I think I've just become a broken record saying there's no such thing as conversion therapy. Talk about that just for a moment or so, if you would. Okay, Janet, at the very start of the film, here's how they define, quote, reparative or conversion therapy. Now, listen closely. Quote, the attempt to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity by a religious leader, licensed counselor, or in peer support groups, unquote. Now, what I find really dangerous about that, first of all, we, like you've talked about many times, conversion therapy is their boogeyman term to get people, you know, frightened and mad. And so they use this phrase conversion ter- therapy because it sounds, sounds kind of awful and, 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 and uh, radical. But notice how they put religious leader in there. So basically what they're doing now is they're saying, look, if you get counseling at your church from your pastor or a, a youth pastor um, for somebody struggling with same-sex desires that they don't want, they don't want to be gay, quote, lesbian or transgender, and they're getting counseling at church, the left and the LGBTQ lobby is coming after that. They're going to try to make that illegal under the auspices of laws that ban so-called conversion therapy. That's where they're headed with this. And we've heard more than one of these activists say so. Yvette Cantu-Schneider said it in an interview a few years ago. I believe it was with Jeremy Hooper. And she said there needs to be a sea change because we can't go after the churches. We've had others like Sarah Cunningham, the mama bear, the free mom hugs with, uh, you know, celebrating parents with 
with gay kids, talking about the church needs to deal, you know, be dealt with, things like this. This is where this is headed, and it's why people really need to be informed that they are being propagandized when they are watching this movie. So be forewarned if you watch Pray Away on Netflix. Uh, It's not telling the whole truth. Peter, thank you so much again for being here and for what you do. Thank you, and thanks for all you do, Janet. You bet. God bless you. AmericansForTruth.com. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Whenever we think about discipleship, we tend to think of the words of the Lord Jesus in the Great Commission when he instructed his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And then we have great examples, too, in the book of Acts, for example, on what the apostles did to obey the Lord in that regard. You think about Acts 14, in which Paul is stoned and dragged outside the city of Lystra for proclaiming Christ. Then he gets back up, and he and Barnabas travel around to several more cities, including Lystra again, preaching the gospel and making many disciples, according to scripture. That was then, but what about discipleship in our day? Who should be doing the discipling and how should it be done? It's a very important question that we'll be discussing today with Don Hawkins, host and producer of the Encouragement Today radio broadcast and also former co-host of Back to the Bible and Life Perspectives. And Don's book is called Master Discipleship Today, Jesus's Prayer and Plan for Every Believer. Don, welcome. It is so great to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Janet. It's a real privilege to be with you. Appreciate you and the ministry you've had over the years. Oh, you're so kind. And right back at you, Don. It's great to have you with us. Let's start with some basic definitions. I'm always aware that there will be people listening who might not completely understand what a word like disciple or discipleship even entails. Explain for people what it really means to be a disciple and what it means to disciple somebody in the verb sense. Well, that's a great question, and you're right. Disciple is used as a noun. It's also used as a verb. And when we think about disciple, I think in reality what we're doing is we're looking uh, to build a relationship. And I call it, I have four components in this in the book, life-changing learning in the context of relationship that leads to Christ-likeness. Uh, in other words, this is not just learning. This is not an academic exercise. What we're talking about is learning in the context of a relationship, as Jesus had with Peter and Andrew and James and John, that literally leads to a life change, which in turn leads to Christ likeness. Right. So when we talk about a disciple merely being somebody who follows Jesus, you're also encompassing in that definition becoming like Jesus, obeying Jesus. As he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is part and parcel also of the Great Commission. He packs that into it as well, that we would be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we should be taught to observe everything that he has commanded us. That is not often brought up into this discussion of discipleship, it would seem, and should be. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There, there are a lot of elements in discipleship, and this is a part of the thesis of Master Discipleship today. And uh, the original book I did back in the 1990s, uh, Master Discipleship, is that there are more elements than just uh, somebody teaching someone or, or even somebody winning someone to Christ. Evangelism is a part of it. Education or edification is a part of it. But there are a number of other components to this as well. And if we're neglecting those, Janet, I believe we're not really fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, that's an important thing. And I want to go to one of the passages that you point out in your book as a framework for discipleship. Now, if I were to ask people in the audience, what do you think would be the framework for discipleship? If you could point to a passage, they might go somewhere like Matthew 28 and talk about the Great Commission. You talk about John 17. And I think that's obviously a great chapter of Scripture. Why is that a good framework for discipleship? Well, it's interesting, Janet, because Jesus was praying at the conclusion of the upper room just before he left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, then tried, then crucified to die on the cross and rise again. Uh, But in that, he's praying for his disciples. And uh, it's interesting the statement he makes in verse 3 of John 17. He says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. A lot of people look at that as sort of a prophetic perfect tense about the cross or maybe a comprehensive statement about his whole work. But I look at the context, and the context, you have six different statements that Jesus made. I've done these six things with these men that you've given me. I've set an example for them. I've evangelized them. I've uh, prayed for them and continue to do so. I've encouraged them. I have edified and built them up and taught them truth. And then I'm sending them out. And, And all of those elements, I believe, are really the framework that Jesus intended for his disciples and by virtue of uh, the scriptures for us today uh, to be able to carry out in terms of discipleship. Well, now, there's something noteworthy in what you just mentioned there when you're talking about the different steps that Jesus took along the way in you know, communicating the truth of the gospel to his disciples and establishing them and doing the work that the Father had for him to do. A lot of people would say the first thing that you should do when you begin to disciple somebody is you evangelize them. You actually say example ought to come before that. Why? Yeah, and I believe that uh, the reason is there's an old saying, Janet, and you've probably heard this, a little chorus, what you are speaks so loud that the world can't hear what you say. And in reality, I think uh, having integrity, uh, having uh, the Christ-like character traits uh, really builds credibility for the gospel message. Uh, Jesus, for example, started there by saying, I have manifested your name in verse 6 of John 17. Uh, And the name, of course, of God summarizes all the attributes of God. God is love. God is light. Uh, all of those different things about God, God's holiness, uh, that we need to be demonstrating in our lives. And frankly, if we're going to share uh, the sharply focused message of the gospel and have people come to Christ, uh, then we need to be able to build credibility with our lives so that they'll embrace that message. Well, right. So how would that work out in practical terms? If you're talking to a pastor, it might look a little different than somebody who's a layman who is working with somebody, a young Christian, trying to bring them along in the faith and maturity in Christ. Being an example would involve what in the normal context of discipleship? Yeah, first of all, we're living a life that shows the credibility of Jesus and the credibility of our faith so that we're not just uh, professing one thing, uh, preaching one thing, and, and living another. 
And I think that's something that people look for in lives. Uh, That would certainly be true of a pastor. Uh, You want to look for credibility in the man who's involved in ministry these days. But I think even for the individual who's uh, discipling someone, who wants to witness to someone, who wants to share the gospel with someone, uh, you would be able to see integrity in their lives. It's interesting, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about integrity, and he uses a phrase that has the idea of a piece of pottery being held up to the light so that they're not hidden cracks or flaws in there. And none of us is perfect, Janet. But in reality, uh, I believe that God wants us to live a life that could be categorized, as Paul said in First Thessalonians, or First Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one, as blameless. That is, mm. when people think of us, they don't think of some major flaw in our character. Yeah, that is so important. Although it's very interesting, Don, you might have noticed in the last several years or so, there has been a rising discussion about antinomianism in the church. This idea that yes. uh, I can be forgiven, so you know, doesn't matter what I do, the Lord will forgive me and I can just go on. And then they'll go and talk about things like, well, the word of God does not return unto him void. God doesn't need me. The message is what's important, not necessarily every jot and tittle of my life, but that is going against what the rest of the word of God actually teaches. I think of James saying we're not to be hearers of the world word merely, we're to be doers of the word. And that's so critical, Janet, when it comes to our impact for Christ today. And I think you mentioned antinomianism, and that's the uh, idea, the attitude that people have. It doesn't matter how you live. You don't have to keep a law. And we're not preaching legalism, but what we're preaching is integrity. We're preaching uh, the life by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. He's going to produce Christ-like character, and and that's the... Uh, impact of the indwelling Spirit of God. And if we are not showing the fruit of the Spirit, for example, if we're not demonstrating love and joy and peace and patience and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control, uh, then we're really not going to have much of an impact in terms of making disciples. Well, that's right. And when you use the word blameless earlier, I was thinking about the qualifications for the ministry that are outlined in First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But that's not just a qualification for a pastor. That's, that's something every Christian should demonstrate. And I think that needs yeah. to be emphasized as well, which is exactly what it seems you're saying. I'm exactly 100% saying that, and and just believe that that's where God wants every one of us to live. Now, obviously, if we're in the pastorate or for elders or leaders in the church, uh, that becomes super critical. But I believe if we're going to have credibility in being able to disciple other people, we need to follow the example that Jesus set, demonstrate the qualities, the character qualities that Christ himself demonstrated, and that will give impact to our message. It will also give impact to all of the teaching that we're going to talk about when we come to some of the other steps in discipleship. Amen. Well, there is a lot more to talk about in terms of discipleship. Don Hawkins with me. His book is Master Discipleship Today, and we'll come back to the discussion. You're listening to Janet Meffer Today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to save babies' lives through ultrasound. Here's how a nurse describes the power of an ultrasound. Just one example of a mom who came in was very abortion-minded, and when she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and saw that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her and She said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed for her own words. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in her womb, she will choose life 80% of the time. I cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. It's just an incredible tool. Will you help save babies' lives? For $140, you can sponsor free ultrasounds for five young women. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, it is so important for us to make disciples of all nations, as Jesus told us in Matthew 28. And the, the process continues. There are always people who need to hear the gospel and then to receive that teaching and the instruction that is so important for them to reach maturity in Jesus Christ. Don Hawkins is joining us, host and producer of the Encouragement Today radio broadcast and author of the book we're discussing, Master Discipleship Today, Jesus's Prayer and Plan for Every Believer. You had mentioned, as we were discussing John 17 as the framework for this discussion, Don, that example is so important. Let's move on to the next one, which is obviously evangelism. If you don't hear the gospel, how in the world would you be able to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior? This is kind of a basic thing here. Evangelism is critical. It is, but sometimes, Janet, we have a tendency to overlook the obvious or or the foundational, and and I think this is critical. And it's interesting that Jesus says, I've given them uh, your word. He says that in verse 14. And, and essentially, the term that he uses there is different from I've given them your words that he uses later. Uh, and, uh, you know, when he says, uh, I've given them your words and the world has hated them. But here, uh, the word is ramatod, the idea of a sharply focused message, a message that really zeroes in on the truth. And the Apostle Paul really brought it down to the basics. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he said, uh, this is my message that I preached. This is the message you believed. This is the message in which you stand. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And obviously, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, other passages he had in mind. And then he was buried. And I used to wonder, why did he say that? Well, that proved that he died, uh, unlike the Passover plot and some other facetious things that were published. And then he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Again, that was predicted in Isaiah 53. And he was seen by eyewitnesses. So basically... What it comes down to is there's a sharply focused gospel message that Paul was very clear to proclaim, uh, and he made sure that message was clear. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed that message to people like Nicodemus. Uh, Certainly he proclaimed it to the woman at the well, 
and to multitudes of individuals in the times when he preached. Excellent. Now, the next one is intercession. This is obviously a great theme in John 17, where the Lord is interceding, but we also need to intercede for one another. What role does that play in the master plan for discipleship? This is, this is a really important thing that sometimes is overlooked. And it is overlooked, Janet, and I think the reason is, again, we tend to think of discipleship as a teaching tool or a teaching process, but in reality, it's a relationship process. And when I'm praying for somebody, when you're praying for somebody, um, it's hard not to build a relationship. And it's interesting that Jesus said, I am praying for them, and he used a present tense. He said, I've set an example. He used a perfect tense. He said, I've given them the words. Uh, implying that it already happened. And now he says, I'm continuing to pray for them. And it's interesting, in Hebrews 7.25, Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, is ever interceding for us. That was one of my mother's favorite verses. And uh, just as he intercedes for us, if we're discipling somebody, if we're in one of those life-changing learning relationships that leads people to Christ's likeness, we're going to be praying for them. And I've over the years, had the privilege of discipling a lot of people and of praying for them and interceding for them. That's been a key component. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's just everything because we can only water and plant, and it's God who gives the growth. We have to go back to that truth of Scripture. Yes. What about encouragement? This seems, again, like something that's very obvious for us to remember, but I wonder how many people, when they're involved in the discipleship process, really focus on that. Why is that one important? Well, I think it's critical because we're living in discouraging times. I mean, think about what's happened since COVID hit uh, back in the early uh, 2020 and and the reality of uh, things that have happened. People have lost lives. Uh, Over half a million people in our country, uh, over 600,000 now, uh, losing their lives. People going through losing jobs, going through all kinds of adversity. Life is discouraging, and yet people need encouraging. And the reality is... uh, I believe Jesus encouraged uh, in verse 12 where he talked about, I've kept them in your name. And there were really two functions that Jesus had. In John 10, he talked about shepherding them, being the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, And then he also said in John 14, when he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, whose name, as you well know, is the encourager, he said, I'm sending you another encourager. And the word he used, Janet, was another of the same kind, not another of a different kind implying that Jesus himself was an encourager to the disciples. I think about Peter, for example, in Luke 23, where basically Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me, and I've prayed for you that your faith not fail, but once you get straightened out and turned around, I want you to encourage your brethren. And so Jesus encouraged them so they could encourage. In the same way, he encourages us so we can be an encouragement. And again, that builds on the concept of relationship. That's wonderful. Now, something else you touch on, which is uh, very, very important in this discipleship step five of edification, you talk about the importance of using scripture. Again, this seems like something that would be obvious, but why stress that? The, The inerrancy of scripture, the power of scripture, the importance of scripture in discipling a young Christian, what is the significance of using scripture and concentrating on using scripture in the process? 
Janet, years ago when I was a student in Bible college, even before I went to seminary, one of my profs used to say, God honors his book and not your brightness. <laughs> and I've, I've remembered that and it's stuck with me. And I believe whether we're preaching, whether we're doing a radio program as you're doing here, as I do each week on Encouragement Live, and as we have the opportunity to do on the worship channel, my internet radio station, we basically want to communicate God's truth. It's ultimately his message. And if we're using his word, in fact, it's interesting, Dr. Robert Leitner, one of my profs in seminary, wrote a book called The Savior in the Scriptures. And in that book, he said that 10% of the words that Jesus gave that are recorded, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were taken directly out of the Old Testament, literally verbatim. So if Jesus used the Old Testament scriptures, and he was obviously uh, the ultimate uh, word of God, uh, then it must be important for us to do so. Well, that's right. The final one that you mentioned of these steps is extension. What are you talking about with extension? Well, Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you just as uh, the Father sent me. And uh, that's underscored in Acts 1-8, that's underscored in John 21, and throughout the Gospels, that ultimately what God wants us to do uh, is basically to take his message to other people. In other words, when I'm discipling someone, and I go back to the privilege that I had many years ago of discipling three men in North Dallas, and uh, they were men that had a funny story about this. Uh, They asked me to disciple them, and I said, guys, I really don't have time to disciple you because I'm writing a book on discipleship. Can you imagine the hypocrisy in that statement? (laughs) I love it. Yeah, it was was crazy. But uh, God convicted me, and I repented in sackcloth and ashes, ultimately wrote that book and discipled those men and had the privilege of really working through the material in the book with those guys. One of those men, Gary Purdy, a dear brother, uh, was working with Smith Barney back at the time and uh, in the same office building where I was working uh, with Rafa Christian Treatment Centers at the time. And uh, Gary ultimately went on to disciple his son, Gary Jr., who became one of the leaders of Campus Crusade, now known as Crew. And, you know, just to see again how the process worked. Jesus discipled his disciples, and they in turn discipled others. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 probably summarizes that final step, Janet, better than any passage. Uh, there Paul says to Timothy, you take the things you've heard of me, entrust them to faithful people who will be able to entrust them to others also. And, and I believe that's the process that God wants to interject in this uh, discipling that's uh, process. Yeah. How do you know when or if the process of discipleship is complete or is it ever complete? Are we all on the road to becoming disciples our entire Christian lives? How do you see that issue? Oh, that's a great question. And the reality is every one of us is still in process. The minute we think we've arrived, we say, you know, I've mastered discipleship. And I use the title master discipleship in two ways. We want to master the process so that we learn the skills and the process. By the same token, we're really ultimately trying to reflect the Savior, the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't ever attain to perfection. And Paul's real clear on this in Philippians 3. He says, I'm continuing to press toward the mark the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. We want to continue to grow. We want to continue to learn. I learn things from people I'm discipling or have discipled. Uh, We use this concept in the Master Life Coach Training Institute, the uh, concept of Christian life coaching, which in reality helps people to go from where they are 
to where they want to be and need to be. Help them set goals, help them move ahead. It's a 21st century tool that gives us the opportunity uh, to fulfill in a creative way that first century mandate to make disciples. I love it. We don't ever get to the place where we've totally achieved. Well, you're so right about that, Don, and people can read a lot more in your great book, Master Discipleship Today, Jesus' Prayer and Plan for Every Believer by Don Hawkins, our guest. It went so fast, Don, but thank you so much for being here. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Janet. Real privilege. Oh, for me too. God bless you. Keep up the good work, Don. Don Hawkins. And thank you for joining us, as always, on Janet Meffer Today. It's a privilege and an honor to have you here. We hope you will join us again for the next broadcast. God bless you. Until then, we'll see you then.